Mark 11, looking at 11 through 25. And really, uh, last week, we kind of covered the portion of Jesus entering into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. And as he came there, we ended with verse 11, where it says he came up onto the, the temple mount there. As Jesus came down the Mount of Olives and, and across uh, the Kidron Valley and up through the East Gate onto the temple mount, he was there and was observing what was going on. And, and here we find that in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, we said last week that it was this comprehensive inspection that Jesus gave. One commentator, we said, uh, indicated that Jesus is there looking around as if he is the master of the house, as if you were owned the house and, and you went to visit it to inspect how it was being cared for. And this is the way that Jesus looks at the, the temple here. Now, he understands what's going on. One other commentator we said also uh, stated this, Jesus enters Jerusalem and especially the temple and surveys all with a keenly observant eye on the outlook like Paul at Athens, not for the picturesque, but for the moral and religious element. He's not sightseeing, but he is inspecting and looking at. He noted the traffic going on within the sacred precincts, though he postponed the action till the morrow. So this commentator indicates that Jesus saw what was happening. He's, he's noting it and decides to put off his action until the next day. Now we come to today's story, the following day, verse 12. When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So here's what's going on. Jesus is making his way back into Jerusalem to give us the result of his inspection. As he's inspected the temple the previous day, now he's going to take action upon what he saw. And as he's going, he's hungry along the way, like any traveler would be, and he wants to stop off to get a little bite. And off in the distance, he sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. But when he comes to it, it doesn't have any figs on it. And Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. And then Jesus is like, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it's like, oh, that's kind of mean. Does Jesus like hate trees? And like, you know, is, is like, what's his deal? And, and, Actually, throughout uh, history, some people kind of get up in arms over, over what Jesus is doing here. It's like, well, why would Jesus be so mean to this tree? And, you know, it was only doing what a tree is supposed to do. But what, what Mark is actually telling us is that uh, he's telling us about the state and the nature of the tree. Why did Jesus say this about the tree? Why did he say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? Well, the fig tree is a type of tree that produces uh, its fruit in kind of a, a weird sort of way. And what happens is when the fig tree uh, begins to produce its fruit, it produces these little, uh, these little buds on it, and they call them uh, fig knops or, or nodules. And they come out onto uh, the branches of the fig tree before the leaves show up. Once the fig tree has all the leaves on it, you would therefore expect that these little, these little nodules of, of figs would be there. It's not the full mature fruit, but you would expect that the, these various uh, nodules in, in different stages of maturity would be on the tree. Now, travelers loved to eat these, and you could eat them. It wasn't like it was unripe fruit. They were actually kind of like a favorite thing. You would find these upon the tree. What Mark is telling us here is that this tree, it, it had leaves, and it didn't have any of these nodules, these, any, any of these fig knops upon it. And by seeing that, by, by seeing that it had leaves but not finding those, you would know that there was something wrong with the tree. It looked okay from a distance. It, as Jesus is approaching it, it looks 
like it's going to be fruitful because it's green and it has these gigantic leaves. But yet, when, when he gets to it and he inspects it, he sees that there's no fruit on the tree. There's, there's none of these, these uh, you know, little nodules for him to pick and eat. And what that's telling Jesus is that although it was healthy on the outside, appearing to be on the inside, there was actually some sort of disease or decay that could be taking place inside of the tree, something that was not visible. And so Jesus finds a tree with that, that appears to have signs of fruit, but doesn't have fruit. It appears as though it should as he comes up onto it, but it doesn't actually have it. And so he says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now we're going to come back to the fig tree in a second, but we go on into uh, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus, he arrives at the temple mount. He comes into the temple mount. It tells us he comes to Jerusalem. He enters the temple, and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now, this temple that, he, that it's speaking of, is, it's Herod's temple. This is Israel's third temple. It was the largest one that had been built. The temple consisted of, of four divisions. The first was the court of Gentiles. It was the, the outermost court. Then there was the women's court and the Israelites' court. And then finally, the priests' court. And the area uh, in the court of Gentiles was set aside um, for merchants well, they were using it for a place for merchants to, to sell sheep and to sell doves and to exchange currency. Now, there's a lot kind of more to it, but let me give you a, an idea of the scale of how large this place of commerce uh, was. Uh, I was going to try to describe it, but I actually have a picture because my notes began to get so long that we would be here forever describing the temple. So I have a little picture. So here's the temple mount. And uh, the outside portion is, is like the outside quarter is the temple mount. And then the very most intersection with like the little gold tips thing, that is the actual temple. Now, the place that we're talking about where they have commerce is, go ahead, flip that over, right there, the red section. The majority of the Temple Mount is taken up by people who are selling and buying these uh, sheep and doves and pigeons and exchanging currency. Look at the size of that. It's gigantic. It, on the bottom, it actually gives you kind of a scale. Uh, a football field is about uh, the size of the little gold part of the temple. They look very inner part. That would be kind of like the, the priest's court area. Like a football field is that big. The, the area that they used for the, the Gentiles' court that they were using for commerce was gigantic. It turned into this massive marketplace. And the temple merchants were there all over the Gentile court. Now, the temple merchants who were in this court, who began to sell these, these sheep and doves, they were overseen by the Sadducees and provided financial gain for the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. And what would happen here is merchants, as they had these things, they would be robbing these pilgrims because everybody would have to make this journey every year to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And merchants would, would they would be basically robbing these pilgrims by forcing them to buy pre-approved sacrificial animals. And then they would also have an exchange rate for the currency because you couldn't use, you know, the currency that was outside. There was a special temple currency that you had to use. And so they would change your money over for you, but at like a crazy rate. And they would be profiting from uh, people's desire to come and worship God. Every, every year, uh, a Jew, every Jewish male would have to pay a yearly temple tax. And the amount that they would, would pay was about two days uh, worth of pay, and it had to be paid in this currency of the temple. 
and they would, they would exchange the money at like an insane rate and, and basically be ripping people off. This was going down in this massive courtyard that was the Gentiles' court. And so Jesus stops, it tells us, that he stops those who are selling and those who are buying. But then also, here's what else happens. In verse 16, it tells us that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So a couple things here. Some, some people think that what this means is that, uh, as you can see on, well, you can't really see that close up here, but on the corners of the temple, uh, there are gates that you can go through. And that they were saying other people who weren't involved with the temple, they were using the gates as like a shortcut to get through the city. They weren't actually coming into the temple to worship God, but they were taking their goods and maybe, you know, uh, moving them through the city, but just being like, oh, let's just go through the, t- the, the Gentile court because it cuts off a ton of time not having to walk around such a massive space. And so, uh, there is the thought that it means that, but more specifically, I believe that it means uh, that it refers to Jesus stopping those who were carrying sacrifices. It, it, it refers to those who would be carrying their animals in to be sacrificed. What Jesus is, in fact, doing, I believe here, is stopping the flow of sacrifice. And it's radical what Jesus is doing because he's challenging the sacrificial system altogether. He's not just coming in and, and you know, saying like, oh, I don't approve, but he's just, he's completely putting a stop to it. And by doing this, what he's doing is he's leveling the playing field for everyone because one of the the kind of side benefits of stopping the sacrificial system, it brings the Gentiles whose court it belongs to, to a place where they are able to be at the same level with the Jews. Because the Gentiles couldn't go past the Gentile court. They couldn't enter in. They couldn't come in and and into the, the court of women or the Israelites' court. If they crossed the boundary, there was a very clear sign there that was written in like three or four languages, and it basically said, if you cross this line, we're not responsible if you die. It was a warning for Gentiles to keep out, and they were not able to cross into that line. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did he come in here? Why did he stop the flow? Why is he flipping over tables and, you know, driving out those people who are buying and those people who are selling? Why is, you know, why is he overturning the chairs of the the people who are selling pigeons? Why is Jesus doing this? Look at verse 17. Here's what he says. He was teaching them, saying to them, this is after he's like went crazy and flipped over everything and, you know, just caused this big ruckus in this massive court. He says, is it, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus teaches them about why he's done this. And he cites two things here. And basically what he's doing and trying to say is that this place that they're in, that they're selling things in, that God never told them to sell things in, this was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles would find God, where they could go for quiet reflection and prayer. This was like their spot to worship. This was their if you will, church area, their building to gather. They couldn't go in any closer. This was as close as they could get to having a, a, an intimate relationship with God, but yet the people of Israel had turned their place of worship into a place of commerce. They had totally uh, changed the, the intended purpose for that court. And this was especially disgraceful because Scripture tells us that Israel was supposed to be a light for the nations. It was supposed to be the, the nation that, that shone so brightly that led other people to God, that brought people near to him. And Jesus indicates this by quoting two passages. He does this, uh, he, he quotes uh, Isaiah and he also quotes Jeremiah. When Jesus speaks, he quotes from these two Old Testament prophets regarding God's uh, plan for the temple and his intention for the Gentiles. 
So the first one is in Isaiah 56. If you want to turn over there, uh, we'll look at two verses there. And, and this is what he quotes when he says, is it, is, uh, excuse me, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting from Isaiah 56. And he says here, in Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6, uh, Isaiah, he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord <coughs> to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations or all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who already gathered. This scripture in Isaiah 56, it speaks of the Gentiles being brought, up, brought into relationship with God, that the plan was that those who previously didn't have a way to have a relationship with God are specifically mentioned and specifically pointed in the direction of knowing God. Now, here's the thing. Within the Jewish community, it was believed that when Messiah arrived, and last week, when we looked at the triumphal entry, Jesus rode into Jerusalem with the signs of the coming Messiah on the exact day that was prophesied in Daniel 9.25. Uh, he came in the, the method on a donkey that was spoken of in Zechariah 9. As Jesus comes and the people sang the Messianic Psalm in Psalm 118, and as they're proclaiming freedom, and, and they're, they're calling out save now, and they're waving the palm fronds, there's this Messianic uh, expectation about it. Their mindset would be a little bit rocked here at what Jesus was doing. Because they believed, the Jews believed, that when Messiah would come, he would purge the temple of foreigners. He would absolutely get rid of everybody who was not a Jew. But instead, Jesus is clearing out the temple from, for the Gentiles. He does the complete opposite of what they had expected of him. He's acting on, uh, on behalf of the Gentiles. He's, he's made himself an advocate for them. He hasn't done what is the common expectation of what they thought this coming Messiah would, would do, but instead he has come to fulfill what God has told him to do. He fulfills Isaiah 56 in coming and making, uh, reclaiming this court for the Gentiles. The passage that Jesus quotes includes Gentiles. This is the exact people that the Jews thought it would exclude. And Jesus shows us that he's not the type of Messiah who can be defined by Jewish expectation or by, you know, your expectation or my expectation about what we think or what we want to think about Jesus. But instead, he's defined by his faithfulness to the word of God. And so must we who follow after him. As we desire to be followers of Christ, we must not be defined by, by culture or circumstance, but by according to what God's word tells us. Jesus indicates that the temple is not the sole property of Israel. His actions show it, but the temple is to be a witness to the nations, a place, as Isaiah 50, 56, 6 says, where anyone who loves the name of the Lord can come to worship him, a place where the Lord will gather the outcasts of Israel. And so Jesus states this, this passage from Isaiah, and then he quotes from the uh, book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. He references it by saying, you have made it a den of robbers. Here uh, in Jeremiah 7, verse 11, Jesus quotes the same thing. He says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. And Jesus has seen it, hasn't he? Remember in verse 11, as Jesus rode in, and he went and he inspected the house. He came in up onto the temple mount and it says that he looked around. It doesn't tell us anything other than he looked around and then he went out of the city. Jesus has seen it. He has inspected it as, it has, as he has, has said here. 
in quoting Jeremiah 7.11. It's become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it and declares, uh, declares the Lord. He has observed what is happening at the temple and he declares it to be a den of robbers. A den of robbers is a place where, you know, like robbers associate, they hide out together. It's a, it's a shame that the temple, a place where people can come to meet God, to have relationship with him, has become this place where unrepentant sinners can hide out right under the place where they're supposed to be repenting and meeting with God and coming boldly to uh, make atonement for their sin, they're there hiding in the shadows of the temple, sinning there in the, in the, you know, with the full, within full view and in cooperation with the temple authorities. Not only does Jesus call the activity at the temple uh, under the supervision of the chief priests and scribes to be sinful and harbor unrepentant people, but he makes this claim of deity again in Jeremiah 7. He states that he's acting in position as the Lord observing his house. So when he is, he, he's making these claims, when he's quoting these things, when he quotes from Isaiah and when he, about the temple being misused, he's calling people out and he's saying the system's broken, you're doing it wrong. He's, say, he's saying that it's, it's, it's not operating as it should have been intended to. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The chief priests, they heard the declaration of judgment upon the temple in the same way that the disciples heard Jesus pronounce judgment upon the tree. Now, Mark here is telling us something. He's, he's making this fig sandwich, basically. He starts off talking about this tree that appears to have fruit, but doesn't. That appears to be busy and healthy on the outside, but actually, inwardly, there's something wrong. And now we come to this portion of the temple and Jesus is tying these two texts together. Or, or Mark is tying these two texts together, excuse me. When Jesus confronted the merchants in the temple court, he was pronouncing judgment upon it. Not the type of judgment that would mean like he's going to deliver a penalty, but he is rather uh, declaring the state of things. So when he comes to the tree and he says to the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you. He's not like saying, I'm going to stop the fruit that's coming from you. He's saying, you're not bearing fruit and no one will ever eat fruit from you. In the same way, when he comes in and makes this declaration at the temple, he is simply declaring the state of the temple. He is declaring the, the atmosphere that has been prevalent among that Gentile court for so long. Jesus declares the true condition of the temple. It appeared to be busy from the outside, just like the tree. It appeared to, be, to, to be, have signs full of life. But when he, he came near to it, the people weren't doing the Lord's work. They were robbing other people. They were taking advantage of those who were coming to worship and sacrifice. And so when he gives the assessment of the temple, Jesus understands that it's broken, that, it, that, that, no, that the work that was going on there would not be good enough. He knew that, that although people were going through the motions of coming to the temple, of bringing sacrifice, and, and although there were signs of life, they needed more. He knew that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats that were, that were sacrificed there at the temple, he knew that it was impossible for the, uh, the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. Hebrews 9.4 tells, tells us that. And it's sin that separates us from God. It keeps us from knowing and enjoying God. 
And here at the temple, they're harboring this sin. He knew that the sacrifices of the temple would not be enough for the people. I find it interesting, uh, as I was looking over the passage and, you know, just praying over it, I find it interesting that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden. When they did that, Genesis 3-7 tells us that they sewed fig leaves together as a covering. I, I was tripping out and just thinking about that and, uh, you know, noticing that Adam and Eve, they wanted to cover themselves with fig leaves to hide the fact that they had sinned. They had no fruit in their lives. They wanted to hide their, their nakedness. They wanted to hide their shame. And outwardly, they looked like they were covered. But when God called them and he was asking, where are you guys? And they came and, and they said, we hid because, uh, because you know, we were naked and we were ashamed. Their covering wasn't enough when, they were, when God was wanting to interact with them. Ever since that moment, all of mankind has been trying to cover their mistakes, their sin, their shame. Ever since Adam and Eve had sinned in the Garden of Eden, that this has been what you and I have been trying to do. And thankfully, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God revealed his rescue plan to them, the first proclamation of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, he's speaking to Satan and he says, I will put enmity... Uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is speaking of Jesus's ultimate and final triumph over Satan's attack upon mankind. And now here Jesus is on the temple mount making this declaration that the sacrificial system, it's not enough. He stops the actual sacrifices. He stops the flow of people going to him. And soon... Jesus will give his own blood to not just to cover your sin, my sin, and the sin of the whole world, and to rid us of our shame, but he will give his blood to remove it completely. Here's what that looks like, and here's how he does it. Look at Hebrews 9 with me. Flip over there. In Hebrews 9, Verse 4 starts off speaking of the insufficiency of the animal sacrifices. Hebrews 9, 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. They're not enough. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He's saying there, he's getting rid of these animal sacrifices that will never cover completely our sin. They, they are there for a temporary moment. They, they don't remove our sin. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, verse 10. And by that, we, uh, by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what's happening at the temple. There's an endless stream of sacrifices that they're making to cover their sin, but it never takes it away. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ sacrificed is complete, it's full. When he has made his sacrifice with his own blood for our sins, it removes our sins. And Jesus is not having to make the sacrifice again and again, but instead he sits down at the right hand of God. His work is complete. He doesn't need to get up anymore. He's sitting there with the Father. 
Jesus is making this declaration that the sacrificial system is not enough, and the chief priests, they don't like it. It says in verse 18 of Mark 11, they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so the teaching of Jesus is again seen in stark contrast to the teaching of uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders. We saw this uh, back in uh, chapter 1 of, of the book of Mark, when Jesus was in the synagogue and he is teaching there and proclaiming the word of God that people said of Jesus, he speaks with authority, not as the scribes. Because when the scribes would, would speak, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and, you know, this other rabbi, he says this. But when Jesus spoke, he says, I say to you, he makes himself the ultimate authority. He makes himself to speak with the authority of God as he holds that position, as he is God. Jesus teaches here, and it's clear to the crowd that this stopping of the sacrifices, the crowd, is, they don't know what's going on with it, but they know that Jesus has authority. They sense that Jesus has this authority. And so they seek to destroy him. Verse 20, we get the other half of the sandwich here, coming back to the fig tree. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Peter sees the fig tree, then without fruit, it's withered away. And this is both a commentary on the tree and the temple. Just because it looked lively from the outside doesn't mean that it was healthy on the inside. The tree looked that way, and yet it withered away to its root. Similarly, the temple looked to be healthy with this hustle and bustle, especially with the Passover feast. You know, there's uh, about, you know, two and a half million Jews on the Temple Mount. It looked probably insanely busy, but it didn't have signs. It had signs of life, but it wasn't really fruitful. There wasn't a heart change that was taking place within the Gentile court and within the court uh, where they had the sacrifices. They were going through the motions, but they weren't being changed. Ultimately, the tree was rotten on the inside and it withered away. This recalls, in Mark 4, we looked at the parable of the sower. There was the seed that Jesus spoke of that is cast out. And when it falls upon uh, you know, shallow ground there, it, its root doesn't go deep. It doesn't go to the... It doesn't take root quickly. And when the sun beats upon it, the, the root withers and it, it dries up. This happens in the parable of the sower because it, this, this uh, seed withers away because it's not connected to the life source. It's not connected. It doesn't go deep into the soil. And so when, when trial and tribulation come, when, you know, when hardship comes, that it can withstand because it goes deep. Psalm 1 speaks about that, about the tree that is planted by the rivers of water. It, it, in its its uh, leaves don't wither. It goes into the source of life. Like the fig tree that has withered away, the temple will also wither away. The purpose of the temple is to mediate between God and man. The purpose of the temple was so that man could have a relationship with God. They would bring the sacrifice to cover their sins. And it would happen for a time, but ultimately, as we saw in Hebrews 9, it would need to be offered again and again. At the temple, man would go to make atonement through sacrifice, but it was incomplete. But on the cross, Jesus would make the final atonement for all mankind. Jesus would replace the temple when Jesus is stopping the sacrificial system, he's saying that this is not going to satisfy. This will never be enough. You are longing and you need more. And I will do that work. And in four days, I will go to that cross and I will lay down my life for you so that I can be the ultimate mediator between God and man. 
You can come to me and you can place your faith in me. And so when you stand before God, God doesn't look upon your account, upon your life, but he looks upon mine and applies it to your sake. I take your sinful nature, your sinful identity, and you take my righteous one and stand in my identity. We also ought to learn from the fig tree. Jesus warns Israel, and he warns us that we must not have the appearance of fruit, but not the fruit itself. God is not pleased to make a declaration against those who don't have fruit in their life. He desires that we have abundant life and and live in that manner. So how do we bear fruit? If we don't want to end up like this fig tree, if we don't want to wither away and be appearing to be fruitful on the outside, but not actually having fruit, being diseased and dead inside, how do we have it? We must be connected to the source of life. We need to have the root that goes deep and is connected. We need to be connected to the root, the vine, Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in the Gospel of John. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The way to bear fruit is to be connected to the source of life. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches that come off of that. And when we are connected to that source of life, that vine, that root, when we are connected there rightly, we bear fruit. He is the source of life. Jesus, in his response to Peter, pointing out this withered tree, He points us in the direction of being connected to him. Peter just makes this declaration that's like, hey, look, there's the tree that is withered now. It's gone. It's withered down to the roots. And Jesus doesn't say like, oh, yeah. He, He comes back and makes a very specific statement that unless you follow this, this, uh, trajectory of faith through the whole narrative, you miss it. Listen, this is how Jesus responds. He tells us, His response is directly associated with being connected to him, being connected to the source of life. He he answers in verse 22, have faith in God, this first statement. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Hey, there's a a withered fig tree that you, you know, it's withered down to its root. And Jesus responds, have faith in God. Now, earlier we notated that the disciples heard his curse, his pronouncement of judgment upon it, upon the state of it. And then we see it connected to the temple. The disciples or the, the Pharisees heard Jesus' pronouncement. And here Jesus responds to how to deal with this. He says, have faith in God. He goes on. Uh, well, Mark follows basically his story, his, his little fig tree sandwich here with a call to faith. And it demonstrates that Jesus is the object of the faith. When Jesus is saying, have faith in God, he's indicating that that applies to the fig tree there, and it applies to the Temple Mount. He's getting rid of that sacrificial system that was witnessed by everybody, but have faith in God, because God will make a way. He has made a way. That's not enough, but if you have faith and Ultimately, he's saying that, have faith in me. He said that earlier to the disciples again and again throughout uh, the book of Mark. Jesus is the object of our faith as believers. He is the answer to avoid withering and dying. And in him, we have life abundantly. When we are connected, when we make it our, our goal and our aim to be connected to Jesus, the source of life, when we're bearing fruit, there is no greater joy and no greater abundant life than, than living in that way. That is what we were created for. Jesus now tells us how we can exercise our faith 
in verse 23. He points out two ways to do it. He does this, uh, he, he says that we can exercise our faith when he says have faith in God, and then he gives us two ways to do it. Uh, through prayer and forgiving others in prayer. Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, he says at first, have faith in God. Then verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So he remarks about prayer, this first portion. The first bit about Jesus moving the mountain, anybody ever read that and you're like, what the heck was that about? It was a little bit weird. Like, I don't know why I would ever want to pray that I would move a mountain. And maybe you've tried before and it doesn't work out real well. Um, the first bit about the mountain, it's actually a bit of a, a figure, uh, a popular figure of speech at the time. It was a regular phrase that was used to speak of removing difficulty. Now, the phrase is actually... Uh, more specifically, and like, you know, it's got some old English mixed in because they translate it weird, but basically it's this. Uh, faith cooperating with the divine will could fill yonder basin with the mass of limestone beneath their feet. That was like the common, common phrase that they would say when you're encountering difficulty. When you have faith that is combined with, in cooperation with divine will, it could fill the basin with the mass of limestone beneath their feet. When Jesus says, be taken up and thrown into the sea, you know, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, he is citing this saying. Jesus is saying, as we believe, we exercise faith in prayer, that God can overcome any obstacle. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying if you pray hard enough and really believe, God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying that you can just pray for mountains to move and it'll just happen because you really want it to move. True faith in God is actively trusting that God who saved you knows what you need. And in prayer, we seek to align our hearts with what God is doing. We want to be thinking God's thoughts. In prayer, and we want to be praying His will. That's why the saying was, "Faith cooperating with divine will could fill yonder basin with a massive limestone beneath their feet." Here's the thing: we can only move the mountains that God wants to move. If God doesn't want to move it, then you can't just will it into being. Our prayer life, having this faith of asking in full belief, is asking with the view of having faith that we are trusting God and his plan and asking for his will and not our own. It takes faith to give up your control and ask for someone else to be in control. And that is what you are doing in prayer. If we pray in this way, we can give thanks, basically is what Jesus is saying, before we see it, because the answer is sure to come if we pray in accordance with God's will. Now he goes on and speaks of uh, more praying in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this does not mean that we can earn God's forgiveness through our own forgiving. Jesus isn't saying that. What Jesus is saying is that if your heart is truly repentant, you could not withhold forgiveness from someone else. If you have a heart that is truly repentant toward God, you can't be uh, unforgiving towards others. A lack of forgiveness towards others is a lack of your own repentance towards God. When we don't forgive others, when we're not able to forgive what God has already forgiven through Jesus' death and resurrection, it creates within us bitterness and kind of this elitist attitude where we determine who should be forgiven and who should not be forgiven on our own basis. In fact, we place ourselves in the place of God. 
but we must remember that all sin is sin against God. God is the one who is ultimately sinned against. When you sin, it is against God first and foremost. When we fail to forgive, we don't demonstrate the humility that the gospel brings us. When you think about the gospel and how we've been forgiven, there's no reason that we should have been forgiven other than Jesus loves us. We haven't done anything to earn his forgiveness, and we still can't do anything to earn it. And when we fail to forgive, we don't represent the gospel, and we show that we don't understand the gospel. Because God in Christ has forgiven us through the work upon the cross. The gospel says that Jesus has already paid the price for the sin of someone who has offended you. And so forgiving them is not contingent upon their repentance. Jesus has already made forgiveness possible through his work upon the cross. And just because you're going to forgive somebody, that doesn't mean that like, you're only able to forgive them if they're willing to repent. We're called to forgive, and we can and should forgive, those who have not repented or made reconciliation. In short, when we sin, or when we fail to, we sin when we fail to forgive. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to it. We don't exercise faith as Jesus tells us to. Have faith in God. That type of faith that ultimately everything will be made right on the last day. And Jesus says that a lack of forgiveness will hinder our prayer life. Lastly, when we pray and forgive as we ought to, it demonstrates, and this is what Jesus is getting at, when we pray and forgive as we ought to, it demonstrates that Jesus is the object of our faith. When we do what he's told us to do here, when we pray and when we forgive others in prayer, it shows that we are bearing fruit as a result of being connected to the source of life. When we pray, we're acknowledging our need for God. That's what prayer is. Uh, John Stott, a very famous and uh, faithful minister, he says this, Prayer is the very way God himself has chosen for us to express our conscious need of him. When we express our conscious need of him, we are exercising that faith. And so here's my desire for us as a church. My desire is that we would be a praying church. Our church was birthed out of prayer over a year's worth, meeting in homes and gathering together. And what started as, you know, just a handful of people grew over time and time uh, when, uh, you know, to this massive prayer meeting in my living room. And then we moved over here and beginning in prayer again. And prayer has to be the cornerstone of all Christian ministry because we don't know what we're doing, simply. It's Jesus' church. And so we got to understand we want to think the thoughts that God is thinking. We want to know what he's doing, because I don't know. I come with a plan that I think that the Lord has given me, but then submit it to him and understand that he's the one that's in charge. And we want to be faithful with that. And so my desire for us as a church is that we would be a praying church, that we would be looking to God for direction, that we would be growing in faith together, and that we would be applying the text, Scripture, in prayer. Secondly, I desire that we would develop strong prayer relationships with one another. Not only corporately would we be a praying church, but individually that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would get together and pray for one another, that when you're talking to somebody after and you're having coffee, you know, over there and eating those little mini quiches, they're awesome. When you're over there and someone's telling you about how they're having a hard time, don't say like, oh yeah, that's too bad and walk away. Pray for that person. I would love to see these righteous prayer relationships developed where we love and serve others through prayer. And then lastly, I'd love to see 
prayer, our pre-service prayer that starts at 9.30 on Sunday morning, I would love to see us gathering together, asking the Lord to pour out His Spirit upon us on Sunday morning as we gather. I mean, like, we're just getting started here, and there's radical things that the Lord wants to do if we are willing to submit to Him, if we're willing to ask for Him to lead us, to pray according to His will. We want people to meet Jesus. We want to see the church grow. We want to meet the needs of the community and be able to love as Jesus loved and to serve as Jesus loved, and we need Him to lead us in that. We could have the desire for righteous things, but unless we're dependent upon Jesus to do those things and to lead us into those things, we're, we're planning, you know, in our own ability, our own flesh. And so those are the things I desire for us as a church and, and look forward to seeing the Lord do among us. And so let's pray now. We'll cry out to the Lord and declare that we need him. Jesus, Lord, we are desperate for you to lead us. And we want to exercise the type of true faith that we see in the gospel of Mark this morning. We want to look to you as our Savior, our Lord, our King, our everything. We want to look to you as our firm foundation. And Lord, and collectively, we want to be under your authority and be led by you. And we want to be a praying church. And would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to be submissive, to fight against the flesh that would cause us to want to, to avoid uncomfortable situations and to, to avoid, you know, getting in each other's business? Lord, but may we love and serve as you loved and served. Lord, we desire these righteous things, and we need your Holy Spirit to equip us to do it because we know that we cannot do it on our own. And Lord, we want to be connected to you as you told us to be in John 15. Lord, that we would abide in you and we would bear much fruit. And you told us very clearly, Lord, that apart from you, we could do nothing. And so, Lord, we declare collectively our dependence upon you. We want to rely upon you, Lord. We don't want to come with our own agenda. We don't want to come with our own ideas, but we want to discover what you are doing in our city, in our lives individually, and in our church, and we want to join you in those things. And we pray that you would supernaturally equip us to love and serve out of an overflowing love for Jesus in our hearts. Lord, we want to know you more. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have laid down your life as the greatest sacrifice that you have given us, Lord, a complete sacrifice that does not need to be repeated, but that is once and for all. And we're thankful that you have sat down at the hand, right hand of the Father and you are there in glory, Lord, and we want to worship you now. We want to respond to your faithfulness and your goodness and cause us to do that, Lord. Cause us to, to respond, Lord, to be transformed by your word this morning. We love you. Amen.